Um, hey, if you are joining us in person, uh, in the live stream, or you're joining us at one of our family-friendly venues, I want to say welcome to you. Thank you for joining us as we worship God today. My name is Jordan Erickson, and I serve as the student ministries director here at Lakewood. And it is my privilege for the second week in a row to be able to dive into God's word with you this morning. And I'm so excited about where we're going today. This chapter that we're about to walk through is incredible. And so before we begin, would you please join me in prayer? Loving God, I want to thank you so much for the opportunity to worship you together. Even though some of us can't be in this building, Lord, your church is a people, and we are so grateful that your love, your mercy, your grace extends beyond the borders of any building, any nation, anything like that. Lord, thank you that yesterday we were able to celebrate Independence Day and celebrate the freedom that we have in this great country to be able to worship you how we please. But Lord, more than the freedom that any nation or any man can give, Lord, we thank you for the freedom that we have in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we dive into your word today, would you please give us listening hearts? Would you give us a desire to respond in ways that glorify you? And just help this opportunity that we have to come together under the banner of your word to refresh the souls of everybody who is here today. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we give you the glory in your precious name. Amen. Well, today, church, is the day we have finally reached it. Genesis 45, the climactic act of forgiveness and reconciliation in Joseph's Odyssey of Forgiveness, as this series is entitled. We have gotten to watch God as the hero of this story transform Joseph from a young, immature, dreaming brother into a man that is pursuing God and leading the nation of Egypt through catastrophe. And not only have we seen God work in Joseph's life, we have seen him work in his brothers as well. And Joseph's brothers who once hated him are now men who are willing to stand in defense of their brother Benjamin. Last week, we got to walk through Genesis 42 through 44, and we saw Joseph's brothers re-enter the story seeking to buy grain for Canaan because there was famine all over the world. And after two years of testing his brothers to see if God had intervened, if God had changed the hearts of these men who once sold him into slavery, we see the messy and dysfunctional brother of Judah stand in the place of Benjamin to protect him from a life of servitude. God took this family many thought was broken beyond repair and transformed them and grew them into something beautiful. And following Judah's defense of Benjamin in Genesis 44, we see Joseph's immediate reaction starting in verse 1 of chapter 45, and that's where our text begins. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these last two years, and there are yet five years in which there will neither be plowing nor harvest. 
And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his house and a ruler over the, all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. You, your children, and your children's children, and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you, your households, and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after, his brothers talk, or after that, his brothers talked with him. Now this is the part of chapter 45 that we are going to deep dive into. Verses 20, or excuse me, 16 through 28 describe Pharaoh's pleasure at seeing Joseph reconcile with his brothers and the blessing that God gives them through Pharaoh in giving the, or Jacob's family the land of Goshen or the land of Ramses, depending on your translation, and then prepares the reader for chapter 46 with Joseph and Pharaoh's charge to bring Jacob and the rest of the family over to Egypt. But in this part of Genesis 45, we see the beauty of God's sovereignty and faithfulness on full display in Joseph's reaction. It is here that in the span of 15 verses that we see the real forgiveness and reconciliation that this odyssey is based upon. And as you're taking notes, here's something to go ahead and get us started. Forgiveness and reconciliation are different, but they both matter. Joseph sees Judah's impassioned plea for Benjamin's life and sees that God has done the hard work of transforming his brother's hearts. And he is so overcome with emotion that even though he sends everyone away for a private moment with his brothers, it says that Joseph wept aloud, so loud in fact that the Egyptians in all of Pharaoh's house heard him. Joseph no longer wants to keep his brothers at a distance. He no longer wants to hide who he, his, his identity no, he wants to forgive the brothers, his brothers, and he wants their family to be physically reconciled and restored just as God has spiritually reconciled and restored the family. But there's a bit of a problem. It says his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Here they are standing before a man that by all accounts is Egyptian. He is clad in some kind of traditional garb. And we know that they didn't recognize him in chapters 42 through 44. And so they see this man who claims to be their brother that they sold to the Midianites 22 years ago. And in their mind, they're probably thinking either this guy is crazy or he's telling the truth. And either way, we're in serious trouble. But that's the saddest part of this whole story, church, of this whole chapter. Here are the brothers. They see Joseph. He's alive. He's thriving. Clearly, Joseph is excited to see them. But their hearts are so dismayed that the only thing they could think was possibly on the mind of Joseph was revenge. And church, isn't that so telling of the brokenness that we experience in our daily lives? That when we hurt others, our immediate and natural expectation is for what? For people to hurt us back. 
the thought of someone forgiving us, especially readily forgiving us, is so foreign to us that we don't even consider it an option, let alone the best option. And as a result, we run from, we stuff it down, we forget about it, we ignore conflict while it festers in our hearts because our natural response in brokenness is not to forgive, but to hide. And for this reason, Joseph's brothers are scared. But fortunately for all of them, the hero of this story has not just done some incredible work on the brothers, but he has done work on the heart of their dreamer brother. At Joseph's request, the brothers come closer. Once they were kept at a distance, Joseph is closing the gap between them. And he looks at them and he says, do not worry. Yes, you committed a horrible act of sin against me, against your own brother. But you shouldn't be worried and you shouldn't be angry with yourselves. Because God, God sent me before you to preserve life, to preserve for you a remnant on earth. It was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph's forgiveness was born from the recognition that God's sovereignty, his plan, his goodness far outweighed and outmatched any evil the world or his brothers could throw at him. Joseph recognized that the famine would have wiped out Jacob's family. And without Jacob's family, how could the Abraham's lineage continue? And if Abraham's lineage could con couldn't continue, how could God's promised blessing be fulfilled? And it wasn't just Joseph protecting the family of Abraham, the current lives and lives to come, but he knew that countless Egyptian lives would be saved, that many lives from foreign nations who came to buy grain because Egypt was in such a good place that they would be saved as well. Joseph knew that through God, the suffering and pain he endured would save countless lives. Now, how does that sound familiar to another epic story of forgiveness? Countless lives saved at the suffering of one man. And because of God's intervention on Joseph's heart, pointing him to the realization of the why, showing Joseph his face was still present in his circumstances, encouraging Joseph to understand the purpose for the pain, Joseph is able to move beyond the hurt, the anger, whatever was keeping him from fully forgiving his brothers. Joseph is no longer angry, but he seeks to forgive his brothers, and now he is in a position to reconcile with them. The reconciliation happens when Joseph tells his brothers to come live with him in Egypt. And not only does he extend the invitation, but we see in verse 11, Joseph says he will provide for all their needs so they may not come to ruin. Rather than seeking revenge on his brothers by sending them back to Canaan to starve, to spend the rest of their days in prison, Joseph extends love and mercy on them by offering them safety and care in the land of Egypt, something that Pharaoh supports later in the chapter as well. The reconciliation is completed when Joseph embraces his brothers. There is no longer physical or symbolic distance between them. And it even says they talked with him, something we'll get to in just a second. But man, church, what those conversations must have looked like. There is, both in Genesis 45 and Joseph's entire story, so much that we can learn about real forgiveness and reconciliation. And truth be told, Pastor Brent worked really hard to create a modified preaching schedule for all of us who are walking through this series. And as he was doing that, I lobbied pretty hard to get last week and this week's messages because I just love forgiveness. And I am so passionate about the ways that not only forgiveness impacts our lives, but the way that God transforms us and transforms his people when we agree to forgive. 
And so as I was trying to collect my thoughts and as I was praying about the direction of where we go today, I was just getting so excited in my brain and I was like, there's so much to be said about this idea of forgiveness. But if we're going to be talking about real forgiveness and reconciliation, probably the most important thing we can say is the first thing that we can say. And that's this, that real forgiveness and reconciliation starts with God. We see an abundance of scripture about how God feels in terms of forgiveness and reconciliation. Mark eleven twenty five. forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. Matthew 18, 21 and 22, Jesus responds to Peter's question, how many times do I need to forgive somebody? And Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Romans 5.10, one of my absolute favorite verses. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. In Joseph's story, we see two verses that highlight God's active forgiveness and reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. Genesis 37.4, the beginning of this story, it says that they, Joseph's brothers, hated him and could not speak peacefully to Joseph. And in 45.15, where we're at right now, it says, And he, Joseph, kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after this, his brothers talked with him. Where once there was little room for forgiveness or peace, God, over 22 years, grew Joseph and his brothers into honorable men who were able to forgive and reconcile. And it is God's desire for you, church, to forgive and reconcile both between you and God and also between each other. We also see that as it relates to forgiveness, that God commands us to forgive readily. Otherwise, we are liable to prolong God's blessing in our lives. And God first, before he asked us to forgive and reconcile with one another, demonstrated his commitment to forgiveness and reconciliation by sending Jesus Christ to die on a cross for our sins and rise again from the dead three days later. And Romans 10, 9 says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God, through his only son, Jesus Christ, forgave us of the hurt that we committed against him and against others, and he restored our relationship with him to one where we are now father and child once more. And for those of us, church, who believe and live out this gospel, if we are to pursue forgiveness and reconciliation to the fullest, it needs to be the result of God's restoration in our lives. And it needs to be fueled by a desire to live a God-centered life. If we try to forgive independent of God, we are not going to be able to value forgiveness the way that God does. And we are not going to be able to appreciate the ways that God works in our hearts during the forgiveness process. The worst case scenario, of course, is that independent of God, we fail to forgive, period. And that's something that I hope you nor any other believer ever has to experience. Our next point is this, when we talk about real forgiveness. Real forgiveness hurts. <laughs> we just discussed how it is not our natural response independent of Christ to forgive and even with God empowering us, there are many reasons that forgiveness can hurt. But here's two of them. Real forgiveness hurts because real forgiveness doesn't run from the hurt. 
Joseph acknowledges, you sold me into slavery. Jesus acknowledges on the cross the crowd mocking him and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Real forgiveness, church, does not sweep sin and wrongdoing under the rug. Why would you have to forgive if there's no problem to forgive? Acknowledging the hurt provides not only the chance to see what the problem is, but to provide biblical boundaries for the forgiveness process, and it puts a stake in the ground saying, this is where we're at, we're moving forward, and we're not staying stuck here. In two weeks, we have the opportunity to participate as a church in the historical retreat. And just like Joseph, we're going to explore and acknowledge the corporate pain that has occurred over Lakewood's history. And by acknowledging this pain, we are going to be able to better understand and address that pain so that when healing opportunities like the solemn assembly arise, and even better, personal opportunities in your life to forgive others arise, that you could feel empowered and equipped to step into those in a gospel-centered way. Church, I encourage you, I exhort you, do not run away from the hurt, but be willing by God's power to acknowledge what happened and to embrace the opportunity to forgive others for the hurt that they have caused you. The second reason that real forgiveness hurts is because real forgiveness requires personal sacrifice. Following Jesus costs something, and therefore forgiveness costs something. For Joseph, it cost him years with his family in a foreign land. It cost him his personal well-being, his worldly human right to vengeance against his brothers. For Jesus, it cost him his life completely. Forgiving for you might cost you your human worldly rights to anger and justice. It might cost you your convenience, your reputation, public humiliation, maybe something more. But I've got to let you know, church, that the cost of forgiveness is always worth it. Because real forgiveness is for you and God. Yes, eventually forgiveness is directed at the person who has caused you hurt or harm, but even before then, it is an act of worshipful obedience that says to your heavenly Father, God, I know it's hard. I know it will cost me something. I know forgiving that person will be painful, but Lord, I know that you forgave me at the biggest cost, that you gave up your life so that you could be reconciled with me. And it's by your help that I can forgive those people too. And when we choose to respond in forgiveness rather than avoiding it, yes, there's going to be a cost, but the great news is, is that God will repay whatever that cost is. Not in the way you think, but via your sanctification, the process by which you are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, holy and righteous every day. Forgiveness is for God first, and even though there is a cost to forgiving others, the cost of avoiding forgiveness is much higher. And forgiveness as an ongoing response and process in our lives as believers should move us to pursue reconciliation with those who hurt or wrong us. Just as God reconciled us back to himself through Jesus Christ, we can pursue reconciliation with others, and that brings us to our final point. We pursue reconciliation without expectations. While forgiveness is for you and God, reconciliation is God's desire for two parties, and therefore it depends on the response of both parties. 
if one person or group isn't interested in seeking reconciliation or if that group is continuing to live in the same sin or harmful behaviors that fractured the relationship in the first place, reconciliation might not be able to happen, at least not for the time being. Look at the gospel. Forgiveness comes at the cross of Jesus Christ, but reconciliation and God's other blessings depend on our response to the gospel. Joseph had to wait 22 years to reconcile with his family, and scripture still doesn't make it clear even when Joseph wanted to forgive and reconcile with his brothers during the story. But we do know this, that through God's work in the hearts of Joseph and his brothers, reconciliation became the best and desired option for both parties. And I know that it sounds kind of depressing to think about reconciliation that way, to think that you might pursue and push without any uh, progress being made. So maybe here's another way to look at it. We can and should, as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, pursue reconciliation, not with the expectation that people will respond, but the hope that God will act. Because while reconciliation does depend on the response of two parties, God does see it when you are pursuing the reconciliation he desires for your life. And he does honor that. And church, I'm here to tell you that there is nothing shameful about living a life that places God on his rightful throne in your heart. And it sounds like, or, or before we close, I do want to take some time as we are ending the sermon to tell you why I believe so strongly in forgiveness and in God's power in forgiveness. Now, just to preface, uh, before I tell the story, I, I wrestled with whether or not to include this in the sermon because sometimes personal anecdotes can take away from the glory that God rightfully deserves. But I felt the Holy Spirit's, I like to call it the Kool-Aid man nudge. You ever see the old Kool-Aid commercials where the guy busts through the wall? Yeah, that's like God's only way to get through my thick head sometimes. Um, but the Holy Spirit nudged me because outside of Jesus, this is really God's greatest act of mercy and transformation in my life. And for the LSM students in the room, you've probably heard this story before, so bear with me. But I do want to take some time to introduce you to my family. Now, this is, or it should be coming up on the screen here. There we go. Uh, this is our immediate family. In about a year, we'll be adding my future brother-in-law. I'm super excited for that. Not going to lie, like having another dude in the house is going to be great. Um, but this is my mom, Corey. She is one of my heroes, my greatest spiritual role models in life. Um, I have learned so much about what it means to carry myself as a man of God because of her. And being able to watch the ways that she uses her career to, to live out a gospel life is so cool. Like, parents or, or guardians in the room, like, I'm sure you've had this moment where somebody says something nice to you about your child and you get this little moment of pride. I feel that way with my mom when I'm like, yeah, I'm Corey's son. And they're like, yeah, your mom's awesome. And she just loves Jesus. And I'm like, I know she does. She raised me. No, I'm just kidding. But it is so great to be able to watch the fruitfulness of Jesus Christ in her, and I just love being her son. And this is my sister, Grace. And Grace is my pride and joy in life. Being her big brother is one of the best things that has ever happened to me. And over the last 22 years, she has taught me about how, what it means to love others well, especially students well. And 
Um, what I love about Grace is that she is, I don't think I've ever seen a young woman who's so passionate about seeing lost people come to Jesus, and, and the friendships that she forms with other people uh, is just so cool. But this has been our immediate family for the last nine years, and I say immediate because, as you all know, we all have pseudo-family members, right? There's so many great people in our lives that have been considered family and friends of the Erickson household. Um, but for the last nine years, this is what our family has looked like. And if you understand and know the traditional definition of the family, you'll notice that there is one person potentially missing in this picture. And that's our dad. It's my dad. On Father's Day of 2011, my dad told us that he was going to be divorcing our mom. And as a kid, divorce is already painful enough when you have to experience that stuff. Um, but after about three months, so he moved out. We didn't have any contact with him. He was very absent. But then all of a sudden, three months later, I started to receive these daily text messages from him. And to put it nicely, they weren't exactly how you would want or expect a dad to talk to their kid. Things like, you're a hypocrite, you are a terrible Christian, you're not my son, I hate you. And I used to keep a list, but I don't anymore. Praise the Lord for the work that he's been able to do in my heart. And for over five years, nearly my entire college career, I would get these text messages, and I would get so angry uh, at my dad, and I hated the way that my dad would treat me and the hurt that he would give and inflict on Grace and my mom. And I would furiously wonder every time I got one of these messages, like, why in the world do I have to endure the hurt from a man that I'm supposed to be looking up to? Like, better to have no feet in the door than half a foot in the door and act like that. But church, here's the bigger problem. Not only was I furious with my dad, I wasn't going to God for any help either. I was so ashamed in my current circumstances. I was so unwilling to forgive my own father for the daily pressure and hurt that he put our family through that I thought that God was just going to reject my pleas for help. And that's a horrible first symptom of what avoiding forgiveness did to my soul. And as for two years, the weight and the anger and the frustration grew and started to weigh me down. And I was at this low point in life where, ironically, I was so spiritually dry and far from God because I wasn't seeking his help out, and yet I was drowning in anger and hatred because I wanted to avoid God and avoid forgiving my dad. And that's when I had a friend encourage me to call my mom. And let me tell you, uh, it was amazing because I called my mom. All of a sudden, I wasn't going through that anymore. And just to take a quick side tangent, right, uh, teenagers, we were all teenagers once, right, and we all kind of worry. We're like, I'm not going to tell my mom or dad anything, right, because we think we're invincible and we're like, I can just hide everything. No, guys, tell your parents stuff. Your parents are smart and they know what they're talking about. Um, <laughs> But then my mom, after I talked to her about what was going on, she encouraged me to reach out to my role model, my former youth pastor growing up. You probably know him. His name's Dave Bostrom. Can you believe it? Like, you've been putting up with me for 13 years. <laughs> but this was seven years ago at that point, and I was so thankful, church, that I did reach out to Dave because, A, if you know anything about the Bostroms, you know Tammy was behind the scenes praying for the whole thing. But B... Over the next three months, Dave walked me through the hard, gritty, painful process of forgiving my dad, even as he continued to send me daily hurt. 
And as God empowered me to forgive, all of a sudden I started to feel less ashamed about the circumstances I was dealing with. I started to lay my burdens down at the foot of Jesus Christ at his cross, even instead of carrying them with me all the time. I started to lose the weight, anxiety, and anger that held me down from pursuing a life abundantly in Jesus Christ. And eventually it became natural for me to forgive my dad. God restored my broken and messed up heart into one that's pursuing forgiveness and reconciliation every single day. And I don't share this story with you so that you feel bad for me. No, like church, I want you to see what God has done, right? Not just in my life, but my family's life. It is incredible the work that Jesus has done in us. And I don't share this story to put my dad to shame. I love my dad. And I want to, I continue to pray that God would restore his heart and restore our relationship. No, church, I share this story with you because I want you to see what God can do through forgiveness. Because through forgiveness, God restored my burdened soul. He drew me closer to him. And without going through the pain that we did as a family, without learning how to forgive readily, I am not up here sharing the hope of Jesus Christ with you. And I am not up here knowing that I have got the greatest job on the face of the earth. God redeemed our family and God redeemed our family's pain by teaching us how to forgive well. And was it hard? <laughs> Absolutely. It was painful sometimes. And did it cost me something? Sure it did. But you know what? It was worth it. Because I know that every time I forgive my dad or every time I forgive people who have hurt or wronged me, I am honoring God with my life, and I am a living testimony of the work that God can do in our hearts when we forgive people well. And prayerfully, my life can point other people back to the same Jesus that I follow. And lastly, I share this story with you well because if God can forgive me and he can help me forgive my dad, he can certainly, he will forgive you, and he will help you forgive those who hurt you as well. God's desire for you, church, is that you would pursue forgiveness and reconciliation just like he pursued forgiveness and reconciliation with us first. He sent Jesus to die for your sins. And when you believe that truth and you ask for forgiveness, you are reconciled back to God where once you were enemies, you are now his child. Because that's the heart of the gospel. It's forgiveness. And because the heart is forgiveness, Christians, that means our mission depends on forgiveness. And I hope that this story has given you an opportunity not just to see my passion, my belief in forgiveness, but the truth of how God can transform and empower you, his people, through forgiving others. Because just like Joseph Church, you are being presented with opportunities to forgive others at church, at work, in your family, in your daily life, and you don't have to forgive alone. As you pursue life that God commands you to, you are going to see him walking beside you the entire time. It's why the Great Commission, our single greatest lifestyle choice we can make as Christians, ends with, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And though forgiveness is hard, because it forces us to confront what's really going on, because it forces us to make personal sacrifices for the sake of the gospel, it is always worth it because God makes it worth it. Church, give him the opportunity to transform your heart 
into one of forgiveness and reconciliation. Let him guide you through those difficult processes so that others can see the hope of the gospel that is within you. And just imagine, just imagine what the world, what your life, what Lakewood might look like when God's people, you, begin to pursue real forgiveness and reconciliation. Would you pray with me, please? Holy God, thank you so much that thousands of years ago, you transformed Joseph and you transformed his family so that in 2020, we could dive into Genesis and learn what it means to forgive others. Lord, thank you that not only is that, an, or is that the only example of forgiveness we have in Scripture, no, Lord, the best example is you sending your only son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for us. Lord, thank you that even though it is hard for us, even though it might hurt to forgive, Lord, that you repay the cost of forgiveness and that you love and empower us through the forgiveness process, even if we can't do it on our own. And Lord, thank you for the truth that even though it is hard to forgive, it's always worth it. Lord, that we, that you are empowering us not only to transform our lives, but the lives of those around us. And so Lord, I pray that um, as we come into this time of communion, if there is anybody in any of our hearts that we need to forgive, that we would lay down that weight, we would lay down that anger at the foot of Jesus Christ and say, help me, please. Lord, that we would recognize the, the sacrifice that your son did and honor that by forgiving well. Lord, thanks for the chance to participate in communion today. Just pray that it would refresh and nourish the souls of the many believers that we have here and on the live stream. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we give you the glory. In your precious name, amen.